I'm Mike Sheridan and this is The Dell. Hey, you're very welcome along to another episode of The Delve with me, Mike Sheridan. So my guest today is Brian Tyler Cohn. Brian hosts a podcast called No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohn and he has a YouTube channel with over a million subscribers. Um, He does a lot of political commentary and he's a bit of a superstar in democratic circles. So um, what Brian will do is he will show a media clip or um, something from like Fox News or from CNN, something like that. And he will then analyze it afterwards very succinctly. He's excellent at it. But other than that, Brian also interviews. He has, he has had, we chat about this, he has had amazing access to people who weren't not just previously in, previously high-ranking officials in the White House, but who currently are. Like, I think one of the last guests, guests he had on, as I record this, was Ron Klain, who is Joe Biden's chief of staff, which anybody who knows anything about politics, that's pretty high up <laughs> in terms of the White House, in terms of decision making and in terms of having the year of the current president of the United States. But Brian's a really good interviewer and I think he describes himself probably more of an, more of an activist um, than anything else. He believes what he believes and he's very passionate and that really comes across in his videos. And I think that's why he's built a huge, huge following uh, that he has built. And I think, look, I think anybody who understands or was even a vague interest in American politics will know who Brian is, will recognize him at least. Anybody else? Um, what Brian has built is really impressive. He has built a massive, massive following off the back of really passion. And obviously he's got knowledge. He knows what he's talking about. But he's really built this independent media empire uh, off the back of, of, of himself, off his own knowledge, off his own passion. So from that alone, if you're a creator out there, if you're somebody who like has aspirations of creating content and, and getting that big following, this is a conversation worth listening to. So subscribe to Brian's podcast, It's No Lie, uh, with Brian Taylor Cohn, and subscribe to his YouTube channel. He already has over a million subs, and it's popular for a reason. Enjoy the conversation. So yeah. how, how did this all start for you, Brian? How did the political commentary start? Because you're, you're an actor by profession, right? Yeah, so I, I started, uh, I had moved to LA about maybe 10 years ago or so, and uh, yeah, I was. I initially come here to be an actor. I did some stuff here and there. Uh, it was fine, but I was really interested in politics. And so even even while I was doing side jobs, I was working in a gym and I was a personal trainer for a little bit. Uh, I was writing articles and submitting them to publications, uh, just you know, just basically as a as a volunteer contributor. And a lot of them got published, and uh, so that was really where my heart was at. Because you're very good to direct the camera, and that's something that. I don't think people realize how difficult it is to do. I'm not sure if you use auto cue or or whatever, but no matter what, it's a tricky thing to do. So the acting background obviously helps with that. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 always been interested in performing, you know. So even even when I was in high school, I I did the plays and stuff, and uh, yeah, I'd wanted to be an actor for for a good portion of my life. And uh, I think once I really got into politics and was able to start, you know. Uh, churning out videos and writing my articles and stuff. I, I, I lost the, the, the interest in kind of going to auditions to say two words, you know, about God knows what. And, and so I, I remember sitting there in my, my very last audition for, 
I don't know, Cheetos or something, something like so just not important and just being like, yeah, this is, uh, this is the last time I'm ever going to do this. And I, I left the audition uh, and called my agent and was like, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to be coming in anymore. And, and they, they kind of read the writing on the wall because I had started to publish a lot of videos and the YouTube channel was, was growing. And so they were like, yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> so It's working for you. Yeah. At what point did you feel like it was working? I, like, I'm not going to get into the political stuff, but I'm just genuinely interested, like, because I, I really enjoy the channel. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, it kind of hit a critical mass maybe six months in. And I remember doing it initially and, you know, putting out these videos that 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 were bad, objectively very bad um, in a suit that was too big. I didn't have a teleprompter, so I was just trying to remember as much as I could and doing lots of cuts and there was no music. And I think it was blurry. Didn't know how to work, didn't know how to work my camera or my sound, um, you know, and obviously that's stuff that you learn on the way. But but I was putting these videos out and they were getting 30 views, 40 views, 50 views. And it wasn't for that. I mean, it was, you know, I, I, I even when I had written articles, you don't know how many people are reading them. You just kind of do it because because it's the right thing to do. You felt like it was important. So I would keep putting them out. And then, you know, some of them would hit and we'd, I'd see hundreds of views on a video and then I'd see thousands of views and then tens of thousands. And as I continued to put them out uh, regularly and with consistency and tried to raise the quality with every video and uh, find clothing that actually fit me, um, you know, I, I would see some videos really, really do well. And, and the subscriber count grew and it was it was off to the races from there. But it was a steady, a steady progression. And I think the consistency and me trying to to do a better job with each video uh, helped as well. Because then you, you, I mean, you interview people as well. And obviously that's what I do for a living too. But the kind of access that you get is incredible. Like you're Ron Klain on very recently, Chief Joe Biden's chief of staff. Like it's incredible access. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I was lucky because a lot of people, you know, it, look, it's easy for people to just be like, nah, I don't know. This is some YouTuber like, nah, I'm all right. Uh, but I, I think that to their credit, a lot of these people within the Democratic Party are recognizing that they have to find people where they are. And not everyone is just sitting at home watching CNN all day. And in fact, the viewership for legacy media is declining year over year, especially now. Now that the uh, the train wreck of the Trump administration is is over, at least at least for right now, hopefully forever. But um, you know, I think people look at YouTube, which is the second biggest website in the world, and and look at Facebook, where I also publish videos, and and at podcasts, where I also publish the the audio version, uh, and and they recognize that you know if we want to reach people, we can't just reach this small subset of people who are watching you know mainstream media. That we have to find them on the internet, we have to find them, you know, on podcasts. And and so I think to their credit, they're, they're finally recognizing the importance of that because the right wing has known that for a long time, they've been doing it for a long time and they've propped up a lot of their creators and given them that validation. And so that's why you have, you know, the, the Ben Shapiro's of the world who, who do quite well on the right. And so, uh, you know, to their credit, I think they recognize how important it is uh, to kind of at least give a little, uh, attention and, and validation to to those of us on the left who are trying to do the same thing. The Republicans just seem like, and like obviously I'm in Ireland here, I'm in Dublin, but from the outside looking in, the Republicans just seem like they're just better at messaging or they're just better at putting the messaging through. And I've seen you speak about this before. And is it that, like, is this got something to do with the nuance that Democrats are trying to convey? Should they just be cleaner? Like, well, what's the way around that? Yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, here's the difference. 
Republicans have a messaging apparatus on the right that is that is unabashedly, shamelessly Republican. And so Donald Trump would wake up and tie his shoes in the morning and his whole staff would cheer and then Fox News would cheer and then Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino and all of the right-wing media ecosystem would cheer and they'd throw a military parade a couple days later because he tied his shoe and they can just message the hell out of that. On the left, you know, this is, it's, it's legacy media. It's real media, so to speak. So, so they're not going to do that. They're not going to, they're not going to just coddle uh, the politicians on quote, our side of the aisle, just because they're on our side of the aisle. And so, you know, it's, ideally, like in a perfect world, you have the, the, the left, quote unquote, the left, who will focus on both sides, will treat both sides with the scrutiny that they deserve. And in an ideal world on the right, it's just anything that that Republican politicians do is perfect. And we're going to, we're going to celebrate them until we're red in the face and everything the Democrats do is terrible. And so there's this asymmetry that we're dealing with right now. And, and so, yes, they are better at messaging. Yes. They will go on air and say, make America great again, build the wall. Gas prices are too high, whatever they need to say to either celebrate themselves or attack Democrats. And they will do it with, with the, the, passion and the consistency that you need if you're actually trying to message effectively. But it's also, you know, they, they have, uh, they have people bringing them over the finish line and, uh, and there is no equivalent for the Fox Newses and Newsmaxes and OANs on the left, nor should there be because they're not acting in good faith. But I think that what we're seeing more and more are left-wing and progressive outlets who are at least trying to counter the disinformation or trying to push back or trying to celebrate the victories that Democrats do have. And so hopefully that will balance the scales a little bit. Something feels like it shifted in the last few years and that like politics before was an argument at best. And I think, I mean, maybe it is Trump, I don't know, but there's something shifted when he came into office that it became almost personal. Like you couldn't be friends with somebody who was a Trump supporter. They could be friends with you if you were a Hillary supporter or wherever it was. What what was that shift, do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that what the right wing does, what Republicans do, is they turn everything into a culture war and they try to make every political issue an issue of identity. And so inherently, that's going to be a more personal issue. Look, if you, you know, if, if you watch Tucker Carlson, <laughs> any random night, you might hear him talk about white replacement theory. Obviously, if that's something that you care about, then... Hearing that 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 your heritage, your people, you know the the whole ethnicity that you that you ascribe to is is being replaced by other people. That's something that you take personally. And so, while democratic politics might be, hey, we want a fifteen dollar minimum wage, we want legislation to combat climate change, we want to protect women's reproductive rights, uh, we we want pro union legislation, whatever it is. These are these are policy goals. Versus on the right, you have you have basically issues of identity. And that's inherently going to be something that Republicans or that that their supporters, their followers take more personal because of what that issue is. And I think they've, they've figured out a way to, to make their issues all emotion based. And by the way, they have to because they can't run on their platforms because A, there generally isn't a platform. And B, when there is a platform, it's cutting taxes for millionaires and billionaires. It's pretending that climate change, uh, 
doesn't exist. It's stripping women of their bodily autonomy. What of that are they going to run on? They can't run on any of it. And so they're forced to revert back to these culture war issues. And it, that's not even necessarily a bad thing for them because of how personal it is, how engaged it gets their supporters, you know? So, so it, you know, they've, they've found their formula. And I think the, the hard part for us is reaching people on as emotional a level as the Republicans are reaching their supporters on. Because you see Joe Biden um, polling up below 40% now. And part of me wonders if that's just cyclical now. Like this is just when people are annoyed at a president or annoyed at something that's going on. Obviously, we're in unparalleled times with a global pandemic. But because Joe Biden is below 40%, this seems to be leading the news on so many, like every second night, every off night. Yeah. He's, you know, the second least popular president ever after Donald Trump. Is that just the way it is now? Is that going to be anybody who comes next or who comes after? Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, it's a, yes, it's cyclical. And you always, you're, you know, if, if you look at what happened after Obama's first term, uh, there was such a rout in the, in, in Congress that we basically, you know, that's when the whole freedom caucus came in and all the, you know, the, the, the lunacy really began in Congress. But, um, and then if you look at what happened at the end of Trump's term, I mean, he was always unpopular, but unpopular enough to lose his incumbency advantage and, and get voted out of office. Obviously, his situation is a, is a bit extenuating, but, uh, but nonetheless. But yeah, I mean, whether Biden is ultimately popular does, you know, a popular enough to be reelected, um, that remains to be seen. But I do think that there is a strength, a disconnect between the strength of the economy right now and the legislation passed versus the messaging. And that's what we were just talking about uh, before, because, you know, if you look at what we're seeing right now with Biden, who is uh, objectively based on the polling an unpopular president, that's still given the fact that or despite the fact that we have about six million jobs that have been added in the last 10 months, that's more than any president Ever in his first uh, 10, 11 months of office, we have the lowest jobless claims since 1969. Child poverty has been cut in half, and that's thanks to the American Rescue Plan. Uh, unemployment's at 4.2%. We have wages going up. So, so you know, of, of course, he's, he's mired in a lot of the shit left by the previous president. And, you know, it was that shit was bad enough to to make sure that Donald Trump lost. But it's still also bad enough that that we're still feeling the impacts um, COVID has obviously run rampant through this country. Donald Trump uh, destroyed our ability to, to, to reach herd immunity by virtue of politicizing the virus any, every chance that he got. So unfortunately, you know, with the political system and with people generally apathetic to politics in this country, uh, uh, the current president is going to take responsibility for the situation at hand. And, and so, you know, for better or for worse, Joe Biden owns what's happening right now. So, but you know, it's a lot of these are just effects of of the gross mismanagement previously. And so un, I think until we can really get COVID under control, will Biden be able to turn around and say, look, you voted me into office uh, on the on the on the promise of, of me getting everything back to normal uh, until he can get everything back to normal? He's still going to take a lot of flack for for how difficult it is right now. The irony, of course, being that the very people stopping this country from getting back to normal are the Republicans who have a vested interest in keeping it the way it is right now, because then they'll ultimately be the ones to benefit from it. So it's this constant 
you know, it's this, this, this constant battle that we're seeing right now, but, but unfortunately there are a lot of bad actors here who have, like I said, a vested interest in, in keeping certain things bad because they know that they can benefit, benefit politically. And so they, you know, their, their priority is, is more to, to hurt Joe Biden uh, than it is to help Americans help their own constituents. Is, is there any such thing now as normal, like politically? Obviously, the world's in a strange place, right? But politically, it's just, I wonder if there's any going back from how divided things are now. And America really does reverberate throughout the rest of the world. Like, as I said, I'm in Ireland here, and we get all of that news here too. The same in the UK, like COVID has been heavily politicized in the UK in particular. Ireland, not so much, but in the UK in particular. Like, is there any going back from this? And if so, how? How do, do people reach across the aisle? Do we have like normal Republicans and Democrats any, anymore? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know that we can. I don't know how people like, I, I feel like we just hope that one day people are going to wake up and just, you know, like in a zombie movie when some spell is lifted and people are like, oh, what, what just happened? <laughs> you know, it's not going to be like that. Like yeah. people who are, rabid Trump supporters who think that violence is an acceptable means to, to, you know, achieve their goals politically, who think that the election was stolen, who believe everything that, that Republicans tell them, who think that Hugo Chavez came back from the dead to, to, to meddle in the 2020 election, whatever it is. Like, I, I don't think that we're going to have some epiphany, some moment where these people just wake up and they're like, oh, that was crazy. You know? So, so I, I don't know. I think what we just, need to do is 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 try to try to deliver some type of repudiation at the ballot box because until they get some some type of backlash some type of reason to stop pushing forward with exactly what they're doing right now it's just going to be more negative reinforcement and so you know when you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene when you have people like Paul Gosar and Matt Gates and all all, all the people that you probably see overseas that are just doing some lunatic thing day after day. But these are the people who are making a ton of money off of fundraising. These are the people who are uh, elevated by virtue of being booked on Fox News and all of the other right-wing channels. These are the people who are who are getting famous and achieving their goals. I mean, Madison Cawthorn, another first-year legislator, literally came out and said, you know, I've built my my office around around comms and not legislation. These people are not there to legislate. They're not there to do the things that that Americans elect elect politicians to do, which is to help them to make their lives better. They are there to to get famous, to be the the centers of their little universes, and 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 to fundraise a lot of money and to just be superstars in their own little you know uh, ecosystems. And so. I think until we see some change, until we see some type of major repudiation at the ballot box, until we see some type of backlash, unfortunately, uh, the permission structure is there to, to just get more of that, to have more of these bad actors, to have more of these uh, professional provocateurs kind of dominate the government. And 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 you see how powerful they are. I mean, even the the regular Republicans, right? Like the regular people who aren't you know, those social media crazy people, they're too afraid to to stand up to them. And a lot of them bow out of their races and they do it, you know, in, in protest. But at the same time, 
normal Republicans bowing out, even if they're doing it in protest, only allows that void to be filled by someone who's louder, someone who has Trump's endorsement, someone who's willing to to promote the big lie, whatever it is. And so right now, we don't exactly have, you know, a, a, a political arena that that's conducive to moderation or normalcy. Right now, everything is pointing in the direction of it just getting louder and more polarized and, and, uh, and that's that's a bad thing. But I, you know, I, I, what what I try to do, what other what other activists try to do, what you know, other YouTubers and crooked media with the Pod Save America folks, what everybody tries to do is just to, you know, lay the lay the foundation, lay the groundwork right now, so that we can continue to register people to vote, continue to reach young people uh, as they continue to get registered. Obviously, they're much more progressive than than older folks in this country. But, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I, I, we just have to come to terms with the fact that it's going to be a fight and, uh, and the job isn't to, you know, the, the goal isn't to just, you know, and end everything. Like there is no, like I said, like people aren't going to wake up one day and just, and just it be over. And it, it just has to be that we've, we've come to terms with the fact that we have to be willing to, to, to fight, every election and to continue registering people. And, and once we've accepted that, then we can move forward and figure out what the best, uh, best course of action is. And, and I think that's what we're doing right now. You mentioned crooked media there, and I was just scrolling through uh, social media before I started chatting to you. And uh, I saw John Favreau had something up talking about how, I think it might've been a regram from one of the other guys, Pfeiffer maybe. And he was talking about how de- Democrats essentially are just been defeatist at the moment. Like they're already looking ahead to November 2022 and losing and losing seats in Congress and losing the Senate. It's obviously on a razor thin margin at the moment. Is that part of the problem as well? Like, there should not be some inherent optimism. Like, the, the Democrats have the White House, the Senate, and Congress, albeit, you know, uh, it's quite close, but they have them. Yes. I think a lot of the pessimism comes from the fact that, for that exact reason, we do have unified control of. The House, the Senate, and the White House. We have democratic control in this rare sliver of time because that doesn't happen often. We've, we we generally have uh, split control of government. Um, I think the issue comes when even with that control, it's so hard, and and uh, it's so hard to get the stuff passed that we want to pass. And even as we're looking down the barrel of what is basically a general attempt to undermine democracy by Republicans. Like we're watching democracy under attack in slow motion right now. And and we're seeing as, you know, nonpartisan election officials are purged. We're watching Republicans pass voter suppression bills across the country every day. It seems to be something new. And even with that unified control of government, we can't figure out how to get any voting rights passed. We can't figure out how to ban partisan gerrymanders, even as we're watching new maps get signed into law because it's the beginning of the decade and that happens every every 10 years. And so I think that's where a lot of the pessimism comes from. That's not to say that 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 uh, we shouldn't celebrate our victories. And, and that's something that I have to like tell myself. It's like, all right, when when don't make the same mistakes as we did with Obamacare, when Obamacare, which was the biggest piece of healthcare legislation of my lifetime kind of came and went. And there was such a void that Republicans actually owned that messaging in what was, again, the, the biggest piece of healthcare legislation of our lifetimes. And it just basically turned into, turned into a, a matter of, oh, death panels are going to come in and decide whether you live or die or, or, uh, or, oh, they have their, their website that was healthcare.gov 
the rollout uh, for which was so botched that you can't even use it. So they they've completely filled that messaging vacuum with their own you know disinformation. Um, so I, th- I think we have to see when we pass legislation like the American Rescue Plan, like this latest infrastructure package, and hopefully like the Build Back Better Act, which would be a major economic and and climate bill, that we have to uh, that that there's a lot of importance in in making sure that we don't leave some void that Republicans can then fill. But at the same time, recognizing that you know we have these majorities and we have to we have to figure out a way to get the things done to 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 fix the foundation of our democracy because you know we have a year until midterms right now it's it's uh, december of 2021 and if we can't figure out how to how to get this stuff done then uh, then it can allow republicans to basically run roughshod over democrats and and continue to enact the the anti-democratic measures that they're trying to enact and and we won't even have the opportunity to fix this after because we might we, we may very well be shut out of the house for a decade and so I think that's where a lot of the, the pessimism comes. That's not to say that we're not pushing these people day after day, pushing the Joe Manchins and Kirsten Cinemas and other moderates of the Democratic Party to to wake up and recognize the 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 risk that's in front of us right now. But but uh you know it's a it's a delicate balancing act between trying to let these people know how important it is that they that they get a move on, on this stuff, that they get the kick in the ass that they need with celebrating the accomplishments that we do have because we have to give uh, people who voted Democrats into office, something, you know, something, to, something to celebrate. We have to show them, look, this is why you came out. Now you have child poverty cut in half. You have, you know, your lead pipes are being fixed. Roads are being built. Hopefully we have universal pre-K and childcare and uh, ACA subsidies and whatever else it is. So it's that balancing act that yeah. we're, that we're in the middle of right now. And it comes back to that thing of messaging of, I don't think a lot of people realize what's in that infrastructure bill in terms of like high speed broadband and all that stuff. But um, yeah. I don't want to keep you too much longer, Brian. Uh, the governor runs seem to have more significance this year than in previous years that I can remember. Been like kind of somebody's kind of watched this stuff relatively closely, where you've got kind of Democratic superstars like Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke running in Georgia and running in Texas. And then we've got somebody like Purdue running, you know, at least in a primary in Georgia and saying he wouldn't count. Uh, you know, he he would find those votes basically that Donald Trump was looking for. Yeah. If I was him, he wouldn't have certified the election. Is this the most important that you've seen governor runs be in a midterm ever? Yeah, I mean, for exactly that reason. You know, we have between between being able to veto maps, uh, anti democratic maps, gerrymandered maps, like we're seeing. Luckily in Wisconsin, we have a Democratic governor who's able to do that uh, against what would against what is ultimately a, a far right legislature that's whose only priority is to enact uh, maps that that help them politically. That basically that basically put as few. Uh, democratic districts as possible onto those maps that are basically just vote sinks for all of the democratic votes. Um, but yes, I mean, of course, it's the the most important time, not only for the um, for the democratic measures for the the, the issues that that um, focus on 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 shoring up our democracy, but even for uh, legislative items, even for you know we we've had the abortion ban passed, uh, uh, SB eight out of Texas, Senate Bill 8 out of Texas, and that basically banned abortion. Mississippi had their own 15-week abortion ban. When we have gubernatorial races like the ones happening in Texas, like the ones happening in Georgia, I mean, these are lines of defense against against Republican legislatures 
that are not only just appealing to the fringes of their base, but that are basically insulated from any backlash because, again, their districts are so gerrymandered themselves that there's there's no they're scientifically engineered so that they can't lose. And so so, you know, these gubernatorial races are incredibly important. And so obviously with Stacey Abrams, we have we have case studies in Georgia that show that Democrats can win statewide. We have Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, who both won their runoffs in 2021. Uh, Texas is a little bit of a heavier lift. You know, we, we, we don't have that same case study, but Beto's been registering people for years. He has his, his organization, his PAC, uh, Powered by People, which has been going out and registering tens of thousands of people. Um, he's been going door to door. You know, I'm, I'm even just following someone like Beto on social media. Every day, it's just him posting another picture of talking to a voter at their doorstep. And, you know, eventually this ground game and uh, 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 the, the work that they're doing right now to kind of build it up um, is, is going to pay off. And so, you know, Texas is trending blue. They can continue gerrymandering their maps and they have, but uh, you know, there's, there's only so many ways that they can delay the inevitable. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll see uh, that flip in a place like Texas in 2022. I feel like it's, it's from somebody who's followed Beto O'Rourke's career since the start of the Senate run uh, in 2018 it's like he's so old school in terms of how he approaches his yeah. how he approaches his campaigning. And part of me, and I think that's why the the presidential run didn't go as long as it should have. Um, I think because he didn't really play the game. He didn't really play the media game. He wanted to connect with people in person. And part of me is like, is that naive or is that just pure? Is that what people should be reaching for and aiming for? Well, I mean, look, you know, you you can't you can't run a nationalized race in a place like Texas with polarization the way that it is. But I think when Beto is able to go out and reach people and talk about the issues that actually matter beyond just the labels, the the tribalistic labels that we lean on today, you know, at the end of the day, in a place like Texas, you can be a Republican through and through. You could only watch Fox News. You can never see a Democrat, have no clue what they stand for beyond what Fox News tells you, which is that like, you know, Hillary Clinton is trying to, to to put a lien on your bank account or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, look, we have Republican leadership in Texas that enabled uh, a deregulated weather grid to to cast a freeze on the entire uh, state, leading to hundreds of people dying and five million people losing their power. And that was the result of Republican mismanagement. So I think that when you have someone like Beto who's able to go out and say, look, Forget about the labels. Forget about what the media wants you to know about what being a Democrat or being a Republican is. Get off your team and just recognize that there are issues that actually impact you as a person. Do you want affordable health care? Do you want the cost of your insulin to be lower? Do you want uh, your three and four year olds to be able to go into pre-K so that they have somewhere to go so that you can go enter the job job market and stimulate the economy? Do you want elder care? Do you want child care? Do you want your roads and bridges fixed? Do you want waterways fixed? Like it's it's not just about the 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 D or the R after your name. And I think that Beto is is super adept at being able to explain that to people in a way that they can understand in a state that is otherwise leaned on the fact that, you know, we're, you know, we're a red state. We're all just Republicans and and that's how it is because you know, being a Republican hasn't actually helped them thus far. And I think that having someone like Beto to actually show them that is is super important. So, yeah, I mean, in a state like Texas, retail politics, you know, door to door, finding people where they are is is monumentally important. 
So before I let you go, who, if you were betting that, and you, you, you wanted to bet on the nominees for 2024 in terms of presidential, oh. uh, in terms of the presidential race, and the primaries are always a shit show no matter what, right? Yeah. So is it, is it Ron DeSantos on the Republican side? Is it Donald Trump? Is it Joe Biden? Is it Kamala Harris? Is it Pete Buttigieg? He's getting a lot of, he seems to be getting a lot of traction lately. There's a lot of talk. Well, I, I won't I won't guess for the Democratic side because, frankly, I have no clue if I had even a, a modicum of the ability to to predict anything. Uh, I wouldn't have sold my Netflix stock uh, when it was eighty five dollars. <laughs> but I do think on the Republican side, and again, this is you know take this you know with a grain of salt. But I do think it'll be it'll be Trump because I don't think he has the ability to give his party away. I, I don't think he wants to be kingmaker. I think he wants to be king. Uh, I mean that literally and figuratively. So, you know, I, I, I just kind of reading the writing on the wall, just like everybody else's. And I do think that we have to assume that it's going to be uh, Trump running in, in 2024. And, uh, and uh, I think that, you know, there are certain dangers that come with that. And I think we have to take them seriously and not just, you know, uh, and not just rely on, okay, well, let's just pass some roads and bridges. That's why it's so important to to pass these democratic reforms that we're trying to pass right now. It's interesting. It'd be interesting to see who stands up out of the Republicans. Like yeah. Ron DeSantis is clearly on a run for president. Like Chris Christie's campaigning at the moment, essentially. Yeah. And he stood up a little bit, but just from the, again, from the outside looking just, in. Just enough to, to fly under the radar <laughs> um, from, from, the, from, from the base that would have otherwise excommunicated him. And I think that, you know, his trying to, his trying to kind of toe that line and uh, he showed, he's shown how, how ineffectual someone can be. I mean, I, I know that he was doing that on his, uh, on his book tour. And I believe that the last thing I read was that he sold just over 2000 books. And, and it goes to show that, you know, if you're, if you're going to try to play both sides of the coin and say like, Oh, I'm going to just mildly criticize Trump to appeal to Democrats, but then also still be a Trump, you know, still be a, a, a through and through Republican as far as Democrats are concerned. Well, you know, there, there's, there's no audience for that. And people kind of realize that you're realize on both sides, how much of a coward you are. Brian, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you taking me taking the time.